And to that, let us say amen. Let that be our prayer as we come to God's word this morning. Let me have you take your Bibles and turn to Mark and to chapter 9 this morning. Mark chapter 9, we'll begin our reading in verse 14. And we will be reading and we will be considering this morning verses 14 through 29 of chapter 9 of Mark's gospel. Follow along and give heed and attention, pay attention as I read, because this is not me just reading words off a page, this is God speaking to us, even as it is God speaking to us as he has ordained through the preaching of this word, so let us give good heed uh, to both this morning. We begin by reading, beginning in Mark 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can. All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's seek the Lord's help as we seek to look at this passage this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess our weakness in understanding uh, many things, Lord, in your word. But we pray, Father, for the help of your spirit that you have promised to give to us, and we pray that, that he would illumine our hearts as we think on these things, and we pray that you would bless the one who preaches and the ones who hear, that we would, we would learn, that we would learn of what the Spirit has meant for us and has for us as we look at these words. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Of course, keep your Bibles out as you do. This morning, after our 
break over the past couple of weeks, we're going to be getting back into our study of Mark. And as we do, again, a bit of a, a time warp, a little maybe disoriented, since we jumped from our study of Mark forward to the events of Palm Sunday and, and last week the, the, the resurrection of Christ, and, and now we're jumping back again to where we were to pick up uh, to events that took place many months before those events that we were looking at over the past couple of weeks. And so since it's been a couple of weeks, let's take just a moment and sort of reorient ourselves uh, if you look back at the beginning of chapter 9, we see uh, Peter and James and John that Jesus had taken them up to a high mountain, and remember there was transfigured before them. That's verses 2 through 8 of chapter 9. Um, then in verses 9 through 13, after those events, after the transfiguration, after Moses and Elijah and the voice from heaven and the cloud and all of that, verses 9 through 13 uh, then uh, show us that as the four are coming back down the mountain, that Jesus, first of all, strictly warned them not to talk about what they had just seen uh, until after he was raised from the dead. Remember, we talked about that, that the time was just not right for the knowledge of that, that event until after the glory of the resurrection, that it would give context to the glory of the transfiguration. We also spent some time when we looked at verses 9 through 13 on the contrast that we saw between what had taken place on the mountain of transfiguration, the, the glory where Jesus' glory was revealed, and Moses and Elijah appeared and spoke with Jesus, and where God the Father himself manifested himself in a cloud of glory and bore witness to his Son with the voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. And we talked about the fact that upon returning from the mountain, the day-to-day -day ministry was to pick back up. The ministry of Christ to others and, and to his disciples resumed. And along with that, or as part of that rather, the resumption of the battle. The battle that was going on with the forces, human forces and demonic forces who were coming against Jesus, the Son of God, in his ongoing work of his earthly ministry. Now, that brings us back to where, where we are. Hopefully you're reoriented now. Uh, in verses 14 to 29 this morning, they find themselves, Jesus and the, the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, who had been with him there, now they find themselves thrown right into this battle. And the ministry resumes here with another example of Jesus' authority over these powers. Let me also remind you as we get started here that, that we are now in the second part of Mark's gospel in which Jesus, after he had elicited from the apostle Peter the great confession that you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God, that now Jesus in this second part is going to spend more time, much more time, and to focus much more, not so much with the crowds, though he will certainly still teach and be in, involved in the crowds, and we'll see that today, but he's going to focus now in this second part on his disciples. He is going to be teaching them and training them for the task that they are to take up 
when Jesus is eventually crucified and then resurrected and then ascends back into heaven. And even already we have seen that as we've looked over these last couple of chapters in the beginning of this second part of the gospel as Jesus has given to his disciples already teachings about suffering and about the nature of discipleship, about the nature of Christ himself, the work of Christ, and about prophecy. He's taught them those things. And now he continues that this morning. Because this morning, in addition to the healing that stands out, of course, as we read those words, in addition to that healing, there's also to be another lesson for the disciples and for us as disciples of Christ. This time, the lesson is about faith and about prayer. The classroom for today's lesson is the town, the town where the disciples are staying. And the curriculum for this lesson is a healing or the need for a healing of a a young man. Or to be more specific, this is an exorcism. This is the casting out of an unclean spirit, which we will learn is the source of the young man's problems. The first thing that we're going to look at this morning, and it's there in your outline by way of more specific introduction, is what we'll call a change of venue. A reminder that that Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, again, are coming down from the mountain. Um, While we're not specifically told where they are, Caesarea Philippi, Uh, is likely the town to which they have come. They had been there, and it's from there that they went up to the mount, and so it is likely that that is where the disciples stayed. It's not particularly important what town they are in, other than that this is the place where the rest of the disciples stayed behind. When Jesus took that inner circle of the three disciples up with him on the mountain uh, to pray and where the transfiguration took place. But then as they come into the town... It's very evident to them very quickly that their their break is over. When they see a large crowd gathered around the disciples and they hear the sounds of an argument taking place. As they get closer, we read, they can see and hear what the source of the argument is. And no surprise here, it's a group of Jewish scribes those experts in Jewish law who we so often see in the Gospels at odds with Jesus, at odds with his teaching, at odds with his disciples. Usually we see them accusing Jesus and his disciples of violating some aspect of the Jewish law as they interpret it. And then we often see then Jesus correcting their faulty view, their faulty understanding of the law and teaching them. And they are apparently at it again, although we're not told exactly what they are arguing about. But here, Jesus hears them as he approaches, arguing with his disciples. Verse 15 tells us that as Jesus comes on the scene, he is immediately recognized also by the crowd. In verse 15, it says, And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. It's interesting that Mark, in his typical, very graphic way, says that when they saw him, they were greatly amazed. 
Now perhaps they had themselves hoped to see Jesus and were disappointed when he wasn't there and now that he is back they're greatly amazed to see him. It's possible that there could still be some remnant of the event that had taken place on the mountain. Remember when Moses came down the mountain from being with the Lord that his face shone? Well, Jesus, his own glory had been revealed on the mountain, and perhaps that's what amazed them, if there's still something uh, residual, we might say. Um, But it could just be that they're excited to see Jesus. Remember that Jesus is at the height of his popularity in this region during this time. But the crowd of people, they're greatly amazed, and they ran up to him and greeted him. So a a reality check of sorts, Jesus having gone away and was uh, in this uh, desolate place up on the mountain, now comes back and everything picks right up where it was. The crowd see Jesus. They, they mob Jesus. They come to see him. And this takes place, as we were reminded, ministry takes place not on the mountain, but in situations like this. So that's the change of the venue that we notice here. Next, we're shown, or we, are, we have revealed to us the disciples' failure. As Jesus comes on the scene here, and first, I, I love this, and we'll pause here to take note of it real quick, that as Jesus comes through the crowd and views the scene here of the disciples being verbally accosted by the scribes, that Jesus comes and he breaks into the conversation and, and handles it. He comes to the the help of his disciples. And he asks the scribes in verse 16, what are you arguing about with them? The the details of the grammar here show clearly that this this question is put to the scribes, not to his disciples. He comes to the scribes and says, what's what's up? What are you talking about? Why are you bugging these guys? What are you arguing about? Jesus, as, as their, the disciples' Rabbi, their teacher, as their divine protector, uh, he comes to their defense, asking what the scribes are uh, arguing with him about. You know, perhaps, perhaps the scribes saw Jesus' absence as an opportunity to, to sort of get the better of the disciples since Jesus isn't there to help. We don't know their motivation. Um, it's interesting that he ignores the crowd that has come to meet him, and he goes and he helps his disciples, and I just think that's a lovely picture of Christ's concern for his people. But he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? But they don't get a chance to answer. That's why I said we don't know exactly what they were arguing about because Mark records that someone else then speaks up. It's not the scribes. It's not the disciples. It's not the crowd in general. But a particular man from the crowd steps forward and he explains at least what is is going on. In verse 17, we read that someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So this man, this father of this young man who is terribly tormented, he has brought his son to Jesus. He explains why, because he has an unclean spirit, and as a result, he's unable to speak. That's the the manifestation of the spirit on this young man. 
You know, Jesus has healed a mute man before, probably many, but one that Mark records way back in chapter 7 where he, uh, he healed a man who could not speak. But this is different. The man back in chapter 7 suffered from a purely physical malady. Some commentators have said that in our passage here this morning, that that's the case here as well. If you read this, you may have come, it may have come to your mind that the symptoms that the boy's father describes are very similar to the symptoms of grand mal seizures associated with epilepsy. But that's not what's going on. This boy's problem throughout this passage is consistently and clearly presented as the result of an unclean spirit possessing him, a demon possession. And this young man, as we read through the passage in the the three different places where we read about it, is suffering horrendously at the presence and the activity of this demon. And this father, who is certainly suffering right along with him, as he cares for him, has brought him to Jesus. He brings him first to Jesus, verse 17 says. That was his intent. That's what he wanted. But learning that Jesus was not in the area, the man decided that he could certainly go to Jesus' disciples and reasonably expect help. And I imagine, well, I don't imagine, I know, from verse 28, that the disciples themselves expected that they would be able to help this young man. Remember, they had, after all, been given the authority to do exactly that by Jesus when he sent them out. Remember earlier, back in chapter 6, he sent them out to the neighboring cities to go and to preach and to heal. And chapter 6, verse 7 says, he gave them authority over unclean spirits. And we read in a few verses that they had exercised that authority. And done so in Jesus' absence. Remember, Jesus sends them out, and when they come back, they explain, as 6.13 tells us, that they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. But Mark here then records the words of the boy's father there in verse 18, you see it. He says, so, since Jesus wasn't there, so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able Literally, the, the text says here, they did not have the power to be able to do it. They had done it in the past, but in this instance, Mark says, they failed. And that failure strikes a chord in Jesus, strikes at the heart of Christ. And we see, thirdly, Jesus' response And here's one of those instances in the New Testament where we see Jesus express the heart of God in response to human failing. He does it, remember, in Matthew 23. Remember when he excoriates the Pharisees for their hypocrisy and for their self-righteousness and their their mistreatment of God's people? You remember that? Uh, You know the passage, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites!' And he says that seven times, and then he details specific sins each time. Um, In the triumphal entry that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Jesus does this when he 
comes over the ridge and looks upon the city of Jerusalem and realizes the enormity of what is taking place. And he, he cries out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And now here, faced with the, the lack of something, the lack of ability, we'll see it's the lack of, of faith and prayer, not only in his disciples, but really in all of those that are present. Jesus responds by saying, Oh, faithless generation. So he's not just talking about his disciples. He's talking about this generation. He says, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Now, he doesn't say that in meaning, Boy, I can't wait till I'm rid of you. But it's a reflection on the short time that he has and the enormity of the work. An entire generation, which reflects the entire course of mankind, that does not believe God, does not believe his promises. So little faith they have. Jesus even comments comments on that in Luke 18.8. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he even find faith on the earth? An entire generation. So So little faith, so much suffering that he expresses this through this this phrase. One commentator says that what Jesus is expressing here is that he has had enough of unbelief. But that's not the only response of Jesus to this. For though the lack of faith of his disciples and of the crowd grieves him deeply, there's something more that continues to motivate Jesus in this regard, and it's a thing that's been motivating him all along, and that's compassion. Compassion on the result of sin, the result of the the, the battles between evil and God. And Jesus goes on to give the Father what the Father initially saw. The Father, remember, said, I brought him to Jesus, but Jesus wasn't here. Now, right at the end of verse 19, Jesus says, bring him to me. Oh, what that must have sounded like to this young man's father. Which Mark says that they do uh, with drastic results. Look at verse 20. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, that is the spirit that was possessing the boy, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Now over in verse 25, Jesus refers to the demon itself as a mute and deaf demon. Now the words that are used there for mute and deaf are are very closely Um, connected, very closely overlap in in meaning. But he says that he calls the demon himself a mute and deaf demon. There's much about, obviously, the demonic world that we don't know, but it appears that the muteness that the boy experienced was connected somehow to the demon itself being a mute and deaf demon, unable to speak, which is odd admittedly, but it fits here because if we consider the reaction of the the demon to Jesus, that it's very different than the reaction of demons to Jesus in the other 
instances where Jesus cast demons, unclean spirits, out of people. When he does this in other places like Mark one twenty four and Mark 5.7, the demons, remember, they usually say something. They say something like, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Don't cast us uh, out. Let us go into these pigs. Something we know who you are, but this demon doesn't do that. Can't do that. And so he convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. No words from the demon, but words replaced with these very violent actions. Again, an unspeakably sad demonstration of the purpose and the work of demons in people's lives. We don't have time to to go into it this morning, but we need to understand two things, two errors to avoid. One is the error of saying that there is no such thing as demonic activity in the world today. The Bible never says that. We have trouble identifying it, and and the, the other error is that we want to avoid is seeing demonic activity, direct demonic activity in everything, seeing a a demon behind every bush, so to speak. But the devil is real. Demons are real. The work of these demons are real. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against these powers, these authorities. We need to be avoiding both of those errors, but we understand here that the demons work in people's lives are to destroy. And Jesus' compassion then for the boy is answered with Jesus' compassion for the father as well. As Jesus enters here into a short conversation with him in verse 21, Jesus he talks to the father. He says in verse 21, Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Again, we learn here how ingrained, how how strong this possession has been, how at home this demon has become, a sort of squatter in the body of this poor boy from childhood. That speaks also to the the activity of demons, that they would even possess a boy, a young child, and stay with him. And the father then shares with the Lord that it's often cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. That's been its purpose. The desire of the demons to destroy. And that leads us then to our next heading here, and that is a father's faith. The fathers explain the situation in in answer to Jesus' questions. And now, in his desperation, he turns to Jesus with the deepest desire of his heart for his son. And he says again in verse 22, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. A statement from the Father that elicits a rather cryptic reply from Jesus. Cryptic in the sense that 
the translators are not quite sure the, the nuance of how to, to translate it. It's one of those situations that we come across, for example, in our daily lives with emails and with texts, that those things can't easily convey uh, inflection. They don't carry with them body language or facial expressions to help understand very often how things are meant to be taken. The statement here that Jesus says, if you can, those three words, is that a question or is it a statement? It's translated different ways. The ESV translates it as a statement, almost as if Jesus is saying, if you can. What, what kind of a question is that? Most other translations translate it as a question. If you can, what are you talking about? Either way, though, the next statement by Jesus carries the greater importance, whether it's a question or whether that was a statement. This next statement Jesus makes, he says, all things are possible for one who believes. I can't think of words that have been more crassly misrepresented by many many in the church who teach that phrase, who pull it out of the context and out of the context of Scripture and teach that understanding as if it is some sort of carte blanche for Christians, at least those who have enough faith, to more or less get whatever they want because all things are possible for the one who believes. That teaching is just so contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture, disregarding what the Scripture has to say about praying according to the will and the Word of God, praying with deep reverence for God, uh, about the biblical teaching on the necessity of suffering, the danger of greed, uh, the, the, rec- the Scripture's record of the instances of unanswered prayer or answers contrary to the asker's wishes, the requirement to, to pray with a correct motive, to not be an unrepentant sin, just all of these things that the Bible teaches that are disregarded by those who focus in on this verse and say, all things are possible. You can do whatever you want if you have enough faith and if you send a contribution to this ministry, usually. Um, This verse and our faith are not tools to control God. And that if we just believe enough that we can make these things happen. It is clear that this doesn't mean that. That's more akin to New Age teaching. And if you this morning here, listening, watching this, uh, if you've been led to believe that, that that's what you can do, let me gently and lovingly suggest that you've been listening to wrong teachers to bad teachers, because that is not the teaching of the Scripture. Well, then what is Jesus saying? He's saying, in response to this man's statement, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us, Jesus is saying the point of concern here is not my ability, 
It's not a question of if I can, but rather, do you believe that I will? It's kind of the opposite, if you think of it, of remember the leper back in chapter 1. He said to Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. Well, this is different. Do you will? This statement really makes no comment about Christ's willingness, but the boy's father says, if you can, will you? And Jesus replies, in a sense, of course I can. Do you believe that I can? That's what Jesus is getting at. And the statement here that all things are possible for one who believes is meant to draw faith from this man. Jesus is saying that faith, real faith in Christ, will set no limit on what God can do. It's also possible, I just put this out to you, it's also possible grammatically that Jesus in this this statement here, all things are possible for one who believes, that he's referring to himself in verse 23. That the one who believes for whom all things are possible may refer to Jesus, the worker of the miracle. And Jesus certainly believes. He knows what he can do. He knows what he's about to do. Well, then in between Jesus' words in verse 23, when Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes, in between that and verse 24, we don't really see it here, but think of what's going through this man's mind, the father's mind. You can almost sense the the conflict in his mind. As his son, remember, lies before him in the throes of a demonically induced seizure, do I believe? I think I do. I brought my son to Jesus. I heard Jesus has healed people like this. He's done many such things. Are those stories true? And if so, will he do them for me? Is, is this just too much to hope for? Is my faith, is my faith strong enough? All of these thoughts probably going through this man's mind and they cause him to cry out from the depth of his heart and mind in verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. What? We look at that and we think, well that is somewhat disjointed, and yet I bet every one of you knows exactly what he means. This man believed enough to know that in this desperate situation that Jesus was the one to come to, and we know that as well. And every one of us can say, in regard to the myriad of things that we deal with every day and that we bring to God every day, each and every one of us can say, I don't believe enough, but I believe enough because I believe in Christ. My level of faith is not what it should be. I am a doubting Thomas. Boy, can you imagine what the church, what the world would look like if we really in the church really believed everything God said? 
how little sin there would be in the church, how much love there would be in the church, how much compassion there would be from the church. What an influence, humanly speaking, of course, the church would have in the world. Thomas said that he didn't believe enough. Uh, Remember, Peter demonstrated that he didn't believe enough. And this man expresses it, I believe. Help my unbelief. See, our gratitude is expressed in the phrase, I believe. Faith is a gift of God, one we are given. And our prayer and our need for prayer is expressed in the phrase, help my unbelief. And then we need to add action to that prayer, God, help my unbelief. Let me help you a little bit there. How do we increase our faith that we can have a focus more and perhaps that the I believe can go up while the need to help my unbelief can go down, what can we do? Well, when you suffer weakness in your faith, and we all suffer weakness in in our faith, and if you would prefer not to suffer weakness in your faith, beloved, draw near to God through his word. Very practical. Very biblical. Saturate yourself, brothers and sisters, in the promises of God. Promises made and promises, past promises already fulfilled. Look at what God has done. In the midst of the storm of, 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 of faith that is weak, tie yourself to the mast of faith with Scripture. Our faith is strongest, beloved, when we are closest to the author and the perfecter of our faith. Be close to the Lord by being in his word. Be close to the Lord by taking advantage of the means of grace, as we're doing here this morning. Be in church, would be the way we might say that, to hear the promises of God. To be assured of what God has done and what he promises that he will do and how we know that he will do it. And let our response in in every aspect of our Christian life be, I believe, help my unbelief. Until that day, Lord, come quickly. That day when all imperfection will be gone, when we will be able then to merely say, I believe. We look forward to that day, don't we? Well, let's move on to the boy's deliverance. Now, Jesus is talking to the Father. The crowd has continued to grow. And and with the bringing of the boy to Jesus, the expectation of the crowd reaches a a fever pitch. And again, Jesus, as we've seen in the past, wanting to control and to keep a minimum uh, to the, the spread of the word of his healings. Look at verse 25. It says that when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. As before, Jesus here speaks a word of sovereign power to the demon. A a word of divine rebuke. And English can't quite convey this, but in Jesus' statement here that he makes, I command you, in the original, he is very emphatic with the word I. Quite emphatic as to who is issuing this command to this demon. I command you. 
You know, you may have withstood the, the command of my disciples, but now, demon, I command you. Come out of him. And it's unique here that, that Jesus gives a positive and a negative command to the demon. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. You are done here. And the demon does. Of course the demon does. He has no choice. And his exit, though, is described as very violent. So much so that most of the crowd thinks that the boy has been killed as a result of this, that he's dead. Verse 27 says, though, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. With all that's gone on, and and to us who have read about so many such deeds, this seems almost anticlimactic. But let's pray that it never becomes such to us. This is, again, the power of God in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ, demonstrating his absolute and sovereign authority over the powers of darkness out of the compassion for this young man who's being destroyed by the power of the devil. And we might also remember to see ourselves in this man, young man that we have had the same done for us. One last thing that we see here is the disciples' lesson. We said there's a healing and there's a lesson. Now comes the lesson. So Mark ends this episode then by joining the disciples that evening after the day is over with Jesus in the house in a sort of debriefing of the day's events. They're sitting around perhaps having a meal. The disciples have one question that they want to ask Jesus and that question is why? Why, they say, could we not, verse 28, why could we not cast it out? As I mentioned earlier, they'd been given the authority Was it just for a short time? Was that the problem? There's nothing here to imply that. Also, we mentioned that it's not because Jesus wasn't with them when the boy or when the man brought his son, because they had cast out demons when Jesus wasn't with them, when they were in the cities doing these miracles. So what was the problem? Well, Jesus gives a very simple answer, and there's an implication from it, a couple actually, from verse 29, but Jesus, in verse 29, he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. First implication, uh, secondary here, notice that he says this kind. Seems that just as there are different types of, of holy angels, that there are different types of unholy angels, different types of demons, and that some need to be dealt with more strongly. The second one is this, though. Jesus says that this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What are you saying, Jesus? Well, let's follow it logically. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, and the disciples could not drive them out. What does that say? That they must not have prayed. Hard to believe, but that's the implication here. Not that prayer is part of a formula 
Six steps to being able to cast out demons. Six steps to healing. But the only two reasons that they wouldn't have prayed are, first, that they didn't think it would help, or second, that they didn't think they needed to. Whatever the reason, it seems from the text that they didn't pray. And because of that, they failed. That reliance, not on past successes, not on a right formula, but on God and his ability is what is needed. In that sense, sometimes failure is a great teacher when it causes us to look away from ourselves and look to God and reveal to us that we might have had that backwards. Only when we come up short very often do we learn that we and ourselves do not possess anything, but that our sufficiency is from the Lord. Whether that's in cleaning the church, whether that's in leading a Bible study, or whether that's casting out a demon. And when the church, whether it's in the pew or in the session room, when we start getting ahead of God and feel that we are so well equipped, that we are so godly, that we are so supplied to the point that we can do it on our own without having to pray, without saturating everything that we do in prayer, well, beloved, then we are in great danger and have already failed miserably and are setting ourselves up for a fall, just as the disciples did. That's the lesson for Jesus' disciples here. Not just the 11 or the 9, while the 3 were, were, out with, were out at the mountain with Jesus, but for all of us who, by God's grace, are followers of Christ. That's why we must pray. We need to have faith, as the Father needed to have faith, and we need to pray. why these prayer meetings we're having one tonight aren't we are so important also we need to learn the importance of faith of of believing not just the saving promises of the gospel as glorious as those are but all of the promises of God let us believe that God will give us all that we need let us remember that the power of faith is not in the faith but it's in the one in whom the faith is placed. And beloved, let us pray, I believe, help my unbelief. Let us learn the importance of prayer. Prayer is how we express our heart. It is how we express our insecurities, like this man here. It's how we express our need. It's how we express our love to God. Let us pray. Let us learn to pray. And let us pray. And let us be filled with God's promises in the Scripture to give confidence and strength to our faith and to our prayers. All for the glory of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this lesson. We thank you for again in this passage showing us your power over the the powers of darkness. We thank you, Father, for, by your grace, teaching us a lesson, even as you taught your disciples a lesson. 
We pray that you would strengthen our faith, O God. We pray that you would help us to recognize in all things, Lord, the need for prayer. And we pray that we would grow in our prayer as we grow in our faith. And we ask this in Jesus' most wonderful name. Amen.